You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Axios, Richard, Hartman, The Sextant, Brian, Doc Lindsay, Hangman Strain, AJ, Roger the Jolly, Artemis Killmeister, Captain Crunch, Rotary Coast, MD, Lost Again, The Navigator, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We've been away from Captain Kidd for a few weeks now. I've enjoyed talking about the early lives of some of our soon-to-be protagonists, but remember that many of them are about 20 years old right now, and they're all hearing about everything we're about to talk about in real time. It's the biggest news of the day. Henry Every was the most wanted man in the world, and even though the ballads and plays and songs were all still being sung, that was a couple of years old by now. However, Captain Kidd is going to become the world's biggest story. He's everywhere. So keep all of that in mind while we get back to the stories of Lord Bellamont, Sarah Bradley, and William Kidd. This is episode 282, The King's Prisoner. So, since it's been a minute, let's catch up. Captain Kidd returned from the Indian Ocean in the summer of 1699. He sailed on board a ship he called the Adventure Prize, which had formerly been known as the Quida Merchant. He hired a sloop called the St. Antonio, onto which he transferred all of his treasure and the treasure of a few trusted friends, and then he left the Adventure Prize near Hispaniola and sailed for America. He stashed his treasure all around New England. He deposited a large amount with the former pirate Thomas Paine in Rhode Island, and then he sailed for Gardner's Island, just south of New York, where he left some cargo. At that point, he sailed over to Block Island to the east and left some treasure with the Sands family. That's Paul's grave William's sister Mary and her husband Edward. There, he dropped off some more treasure and picked up his wife and kids. And at this point, he actually sailed back to Gardner's Island and buried a large amount of his treasure. 
Then he sailed for Boston. When he arrived, he presented himself before the governor, who had been his patron, but he found the relationship had grown a bit more antagonistic, and the two men circled each other for a while. Finally, growing frustrated with his situation, Captain Kidd burst into his home, sword drawn, and was arrested. What neither William nor Sarah knew was that Bellamont was not arresting Captain Kidd of his own volition. He'd received orders and had a lot of pressure from above to arrest Captain Kidd for piracy. According to Daphne Giannakopoulos in The Pirate's Wife, quote, Bellamont received a letter from Secretary Vernon, that's Secretary of State James Vernon, relaying the Lord Justice's disdain for Kidd's behavior. Vernon ordered Bellamont to immediately arrest Kidd and his crew and to seize and secure the treasure. End quote. James Vernon was not a powerful political figure. He wasn't going to be in office more than a few months. But as the Secretary of State, a letter from James Vernon was as good as a letter from the King. And not just the King, but the entire Privy Council, the most powerful Whigs in England. It was an order that Lord Bellamont could not ignore. And while a lot of what Lord Bellamont is about to do is pretty dishonest, I think some of it, at least, can be explained away by all this pressure from above. Shortly thereafter, Sarah Kidd was also arrested, presumably to pressure her into giving up the treasure. That was Lord Bellamont's main concern. Now that he had Kidd behind bars, he needed the plunder. Sarah spent her time in jail, writing letter after letter to anyone she knew with even a little bit of influence, and finally, growing frustrated, Lord Bellamont threatened to have her and her husband executed. In response to this insane declaration, the Council of New England decided to overrule Lord Bellamont in his decision to execute the prisoners and even released Sarah Kidd. I don't really understand why. Lord Bellamont wanted to have Captain Kidd and Sarah executed. It was illegal, first of all. Pirates, by law, had to be transported back to England. He also needed their treasure, and they were the only people who knew where it was, so you might want to keep them alive, but he really, really did want them executed. In fact, later on, he's going to try to get the council to pass a resolution that will give him the power to execute whoever he wants, regardless of what the fat cats in London say. But they overrule that as well. It's almost as if Lord Bellamont wanted to keep William and Sarah quiet about something, but I'm not really sure what. You know, it's not like it was a state secret that he supported Captain Kidd in the first place. I don't, I don't know what dirt Kidd may have had on him. It was at this point, while Sarah was able to converse with her husband through the bars of the old stone jail, that she wrote to Thomas Paine, asking for some of her gold to be delivered. She sent this with a messenger who was to bring back the gold, and did so, although one bar did fall out of his pocket, and into his other pocket, presumably. Still, she had some funds, and that gave her a little bit of wiggle room. At about this same time, Lord Bellamont was writing to John Gardiner, ordering him to bring Captain Kidd's plunder to Boston. And Gardiner did as asked, with just the plunder, not the buried treasure, 
but it was about this time that all the drama surrounding James Kelly comes to light. How James Kelly threatened John Gardner's wife if his treasure was not released. So, James Kelly was also arrested and thrown into jail alongside William Kidd, Joseph Bradish, Hugh Parrott, and a whole host of other pirates that filled up the old stone jail. And that pretty much brings us up to date. Part of the reason that I wanted to take a couple of weeks to talk about other topics is because, well, not a lot is happening in the story of Captain Kidd. They kind of reach a stalemate at this point. Lord Bellamont had sent an agent in the St. Antonio in search of the adventure prize, a man named Captain Carey, but for now, Bellamont is just kind of waiting for Captain Carey to return. Sarah was trying to get some of her own plans into action, but mostly that meant writing a lot of letters to anybody that she thought might be able to help them, and she found out that she had fewer friends than she remembered. So for now, everybody's just kind of sitting around, waiting for something to happen. Now, autumn was coming on, and Boston was growing cold. Sarah Kidd's biggest win during this period was petitioning for a coat for her husband, and they gave him one. But then, in October 1699, Bellamont finally received word from London. And it wasn't James Vernon anymore. Things had changed in London. You know, in my first draft here, I wrote things had changed at Whitehall, but that didn't feel right, so I double-checked it, and I'm glad I did, because Whitehall no longer existed. Whitehall had been the largest palace complex in all of Europe. It housed the royal family, all of their private apartments, as well as all of their spaces for entertaining and their official court for government business, but it also housed Parliament. It was larger even than Versailles, but just a few months before Lord Bellamont received that letter, Whitehall caught fire. It was started by a servant trying to dry some linen rags over a brazier, but it spread amazingly quickly, and the fire continued for over fifteen hours. In the end, every residential and government building was little more than rubble. So King William moved his court to St. James Palace. Now, St. James had existed for some time, and it had always been kind of a secondary royal palace, a place where the royal family could have more privacy. But it turned out to be plenty of space for the royal court, at least until they built Buckingham Palace in a couple of decades. But this was fortuitous for the Parliament as well. St. James was not big enough for Parliament to go into session, but... Ever since the Glorious Revolution, Parliament had really been independent from the king. It was a little awkward that they were still operating, you know, cheek by jowl with him. So from this point on, the Parliament will be meeting at the Royal Palace at Westminster, not too far from St. James and King William, but definitely distinct. That letter that arrived before Lord Bellamont was sent from St. James Palace by a man who we do need to remember. His name was Charles Hedges. Hedges was not yet the Secretary of State officially, although he would be, but he was the de facto Secretary of State. And that matters in our story for two big reasons here. First, Charles Hedges was a Tory. That's part of why he wasn't the de jure 
secretary, but it also tells us that the Whigs were losing ground in England, largely due to the controversy surrounding Captain Kidd. But the other reason that we need to remember Charles Hedges is because he was a judge, a high judge of the Admiralty Court. And even when he served as Queen Anne's Secretary of State, he would continue to serve as High Judge of the Admiralty. And he would do so for about 15 years. It's under his watch that the Pirate Republic at Nassau really begins to flourish, so let's try to remember Charles Hedges. More immediately, he's going to be the one that oversees Captain Kidd's trial. Now, as an admiralty judge, he may have just wanted to see this pirate brought to justice, but as a very prominent Tory who found himself in a powerful position in the government, he was going to use that for his faction's political gain. Captain Kidd made the Whigs look bad. Hedges would be a fool if he didn't try to drag Captain Kidd's name through the mud and across the headlines as much as possible. Which is why his letter to Lord Bellamont was so filled with glowing praise. He said that Bellamont had done a fine job. Excellent work capturing that pirate. Hold on to him, and the treasure, of course, because we're going to send a ship, HMS Rochester, to pick him up. All of which sounded pretty good. It made him look good. But just a few days later, Captain Carey arrived aboard the St. Antonio. Now, he should have been aboard the Adventure Prize, with the sloop St. Antonio in tow, but there was no Adventure Prize to be seen. When Captain Carey came ashore, he had quite a tale of woe to tell. Honestly, Captain Carey's voyage is worthy of its own book. You know, we could do an entire episode on it. He made a real circuit of the West Indies, searching for the Adventure Prize. We're not going to spend that much time on it, but it's worth a look. After he left Boston, he headed down the coast, past Carolina, and took a wide berth around Florida and made his way into the Bahamas. He stopped for wood and water at Nassau and then continued on to Hispaniola. However, although he had a rough idea where the Adventure Prize was supposed to be, she was nowhere to be found. Through a bit of detective work, Captain Carey picked up her trail, though, and he set a heading for the Leeward Islands to the east. There he stopped at virtually every English and Dutch port, just to ask if anybody had any word of this Adventure Prize. And of course, nobody had heard anything. Adventure Prize? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not familiar with what that is. The governor of St. Thomas, a Dutch colony, was clear that no Moorish goods whatsoever had been traded through his port, and he would remember. And if I were making a movie of this voyage, this would be the point where, in the background, you'd see a guy walk out with a really big turban on his head. He'd be carrying a hookah with a comically large scimitar, and maybe some of those kind of curly Q genie shoes. Which isn't to suggest that any of the goods from the Adventure Prize were currently in St. Thomas, but many of the goods had passed through that port in the past few months, most of which had been sold to a firm of German merchants and never to be seen again. When the St. Antonio reached Antigua, a group of merchants there in port recognized the sloop, because it belonged to them, it was their ship. 
The captain of the St. Antonio, the man who had brought Captain Kidd to America, had been supposed to return with that ship several weeks before. But of course, he'd been detained, and the St. Antonio had been commandeered. These merchants, seeing their ship flying English colors, cried piracy. They did so to the governor, who very nearly had the men on board arrested. Captain Carey had to slip out of port just ahead of the magistrates. He did, though, leave a letter telling the governor to write to Lord Bellamont, who would clear all of this up. As they continued their circuit through the Leeward and Windward Islands, eventually the St. Antonio made it to Curaçao. There, after weeks of searching, Captain Carey learned where the adventure prize was supposed to be hidden. It was a tiny little island, pretty far to the northwest, near the Mosquito Coast and Old Providence Island, called Santa Catalina. That voyage took some time and was fairly dangerous, considering they were sailing mostly through Spanish territory, but eventually the St. Antonio reached Santa Catalina. When they got there, though, there was no Moorish vessel anywhere to be seen. All they found was an old rope tied to a tree that ended suddenly where it had been burned through. It appeared that someone had received word that Captain Carey was coming, raced to Santa Catalina to beat him there, burned the rope to set the ship free, and taken her, well, nobody knew where. When Captain Carey returned to Boston, all he had to show for his effort was a short length of burned rope. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. This put Bellamont in a really tight spot. 
He was expected to return with a large pile of plunder, which was nowhere to be seen, but even more troubling. It seems like his bosses really didn't grasp the whole concept of equal shares. They seem to have expected Captain Kidd to have had all the treasure from the Quita merchant on his person, or hidden away somewhere. Most of that plunder went with the pirates who abandoned him on Madagascar. Still, though, that wasn't going to stop Lord Bellamont from trying to find as much as possible. He'd received reports about a messenger who had been sent from Sarah to ride in haste for Rhode Island. Naturally, this seemed odd, so Lord Bellamont, who was suffering a bit less from the gout ever since the cold set in, decided to go pay Thomas Paine a visit in person. Bellamont demanded that Thomas Paine produce any plunder that had been entrusted to him. But Thomas Paine denied that he had ever had any treasure belonging to Captain Kidd. Now this is a bold move. He's lying to the most powerful man in America. Not only that, he's lying about something that, with a bit of luck, Governor Bellamont could disprove. And Bellamont knew, or, you know, suspected very much that Thomas Paine was lying to him, but he had no proof. So he had to leave. But four times over the following few weeks, he would depose Thomas Paine. You know, a court injunction, but Thomas Paine never responded. Finally, the governor sent men with swords to collect an official statement from Thomas Paine. A statement about Captain Kidd's treasure. This must have been tense. Thomas Paine had to wonder if the governor had any hard evidence that he was, in fact, sitting on a huge pile of gold. Or it could just be a bluff. So should he lie or tell the truth? On the one hand, he could lose the gold and break his promise, but go free. On the other, he could keep the gold, keep his promise and his honor, and maybe get arrested. Thomas Paine decided to roll the dice, and he lied. He wrote a full deposition that claimed he had in fact rebuffed Captain Kidd's request to hide some of his treasure. And that turned out to have been the right decision. I don't think that... Well, you know, Bellamont would have been perfectly happy to find a big pile of treasure at Thomas Paine's estate, but I don't think he really expected to. Instead, I think he was trying to create a paper trail here to prove to his lords and masters back in London that he was doing everything possible to find that treasure, turning over every stone. If he could do everything he could to prove that Captain Kidd had disposed of his treasure long before reaching America, well, it wasn't ideal. Having the treasure would be ideal, but it would take some of the heat off of Bellamont himself. So, with that deposition in hand, the men with swords left Thomas Paine in Rhode Island. So, Lord Bellamont had a lot of work to do. As luck would have it, though, the worst winter storm in memory fell on Boston at just that moment. The city just shut down. It was the kind of winter storm that killed livestock, that froze the sap in trees and made them burst from the pressure. It was the kind of storm that makes finding fuel for a fire a dangerous prospect. Going out to chop wood might mean you just freeze to death. 
That means that ready fuel, you know, already chopped wood, was in high demand and nobody wanted to waste it on some prisoners, especially not some filthy pirates. Bellamont funded the Old Stone Jail with public funds. And they had a budget to provide firewood and food for the prisoners, but if you were facing the hardest winter you'd ever seen, wouldn't you be a bit tempted to keep some of that firewood and food for yourself just in case? So Bellamont had to dip into his own private funds to ensure that these men were giving the prisoners the straw, the food, and the firewood they needed. He could not let any of these pirates die, especially since he didn't have any treasure to placate the lords in London. And it seems that at about this time, Bellamont realized something. He recognized a danger to his keeping Captain Kidd in chains. He hired a whole group of guards that would keep a personal watch on Sarah Kidd at all times. They didn't harass her or anything, but they stayed outside her inn watching every exit, and whenever she went anywhere, they followed her to make sure she wasn't heading to the jail. See, Sarah Kidd had been inside the old stone jail. She'd been a prisoner there. That means she knew the layout. She knew where the guards took their rest and their schedules. It would not be outside the realm of possibility that Sarah Kidd could hire a team of brigands or pirates to break Captain Kidd out of jail. As Christmas 1699 came and went, a blanket of snow and ice covered Boston. The only activity out on the streets seemed to be the militia of guards guarding the old stone jail. But it's not like the people of Boston regretted missing Christmas. Remember, they were Puritan, and Puritans did not celebrate Christmas. They considered it a pagan festival, which... Yeah. But that winter just dragged on. It never got warm. It never thawed. And as 1699 turned into 1700, every day seemed to be colder than the last. Captain Kidd, though, did have one last trick up his sleeve. Not a very good trick, but his last hope, really. He wrote to Governor Bellamont with a proposal. He offered to sail. Under guard, as a prisoner, he offered to guide Bellamont's men to the location of the Adventure Prize. He wanted to show Governor Bellamont that he had every intention of cooperating with him, to provide him with all of the promised plunder. It was his last chance to ingratiate himself with the men who had imprisoned him. You know, I don't think Kidd thought at this point that he was going to be released. He knew that he was going to have to go face a jury in London. But if he had a man like Lord Bellamont on his side, a man who had employed him as a privateer, a man who currently held the French passports that proved Captain Kidd's actions had been legal well, then Kidd probably wouldn't have anything to worry about. He could prove that Captain Kidd was not a pirate. But then Bellamont said to him that he could offer no such deal to William Kidd, because William Kidd was, quote, the king's prisoner. This was Lord Bellamont washing his hands of Captain Kidd. You know, there's nothing I can do. You belong to the King of England. 
and it seems like here is where Captain Kidd began to realize just how desperate his situation was. Sarah wasn't going to give up that easily. She appears to have hatched a couple of different plans during the early months of 1700. The most promising of these was a simple bribe, to try and get one of the guards at the jail to release her husband. Now, I don't know that any of this was actually on the table, and even if it was, Captain Kidd couldn't have known about it because Sarah wasn't able to go visit him. Only one man, it seems, was allowed to visit the pirates in the Old Stone Jail. That was a New England resident with unimpeachable morals. On the 26th of January, 1700, Cotton Mather paid a visit to the pirates. He intended to minister to them. He meditated on Jeremiah 1711. In the King James Bible it reads, quote, As the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches, and not by right, shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. Just a few days later, a messenger appeared before Governor Bellamont. HMS Rochester had been damaged in a storm and returned to England. However, the Royal Navy Man of War Advice was currently sitting just outside Boston Harbor, waiting for Captain Kidd. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody that has left us ratings or reviews, they really help get the show out there. And everybody that has recommended this show to your friends and family, you all make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, I can't recommend highly enough Ben Franklin's World. You can find it at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. There you can get in touch with me or find links to some of our other, smaller, newer projects. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.